If you're just uh, trickling in or if you're tuning in online, uh, first off, welcome. We are glad you're here. And I'm glad you're here per, uh, specifically because we've got, we've got a lot of uh, fun ground today, I think, to cover in Scripture. We've been in the book of Exodus. Uh, we've been in the book of Exodus for just about an entire calendar year. Uh, we've been taking it uh, verse by verse. We've broken it up into four parts. The first three parts we've done very verse by verse. But if you've been doing the kind of uh, homework we've been sending out on social media and in email, uh, you'll know that we're taking much larger chunks of Scripture. We've been looking at these larger chunks and viewing them f- through the lens of what we have been calling a liturgy for living. Meaning that we've seen God lovingly guiding and instructing his people in a way that not only sets them apart as his chosen people and gives them access to his presence, but also teaches us here today how to walk in a fullness of life. It's that fullness of life that we're here to talk about today. So for the past few years, uh, I feel like we've just been in in the middle of a hurricane of cultural changes and tension and confusion. And if you're a Christ follower, I feel it can be kind of hard to reconcile what we know to be true and what we see alive in our culture today. I think the dissonance that we feel is that you and I live in a culture where our needs are constantly being evaluated and distilled and simplified and then monetized to us. This process, it pervades almost every walk of life. It is almost impossible to escape it. If you're plugged in anywhere, in any fashion, somewhere, someone knows exactly what you're, <laughs> what you're searching, what you're watching, what you're buying, And probably the scariest thing of all is that that same someone knows what to do with that information. It feels a little dystopian at times, doesn't it? Like you've all, maybe you've come across this, like you searched for something random on the internet. Like I searched for uh, garbage disposal cleaning tablets, like one time. And then everywhere I went, like it's in the sidebar of all the websites, I'm getting ads on Facebook Like, you can't escape. If that's not been you, you're just getting information bombarded at you day after day after day. And they're just hoping that something sticks. Like, they're hoping that you are just the one guy that needs to know where Tom Brady rents his cars. You know what I'm saying? Some of you may try to live a little more disconnected, uh, maybe off the grid. You might be that guy. I think it's a lot harder to do than you think. I know that's just a couple of examples out of the probably millions we could talk about today. I'm sure you can all relate a little bit, but what it all comes down to is the way that our culture promises fulfillment and a fullness of life for ourselves, uh, for others, for our families, for the impoverished, etc., etc. The culture makes promises that ultimately, spoiler alert, it can't keep. The culture around us wants us to think that true fulfillment is found within ourselves, That we just need to look and dig a little deeper and find out what it is that we need, that thing, that's going to bring us into the best version of ourselves, like whatever that even means. And the cool thing about this is that there will be a product or a service or even like a belief system that will get us there and somebody will sell it to us. As Christ's followers, we have an obligation to know that the world thinks this way and 
to remember that true fulfillment is only really found in communion with the Father. So, let's see what the Father has in store for us today in his word. We're going to turn to the book of Exodus today in chapter 28. Uh, We're going to be covering a lot of ground, so if you want to follow along on the screens, all the scripture will be up there today. God has given us a blueprint for true fullness of life by teaching us how to meet with him. We've seen the meeting place, which is the tabernacle. Uh, We've seen uh, a lot of laws and practices passed down in the previous sections. And so now we're going to look at God's chosen instruments of meeting and sacrifice and worship. God's word says this in verse 1 of Exodus 28, and it'll be right behind me here. Then bring near to you, he's saying this to Moses, Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother for glory and for beauty. Excuse me. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that you shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. So as we move forward through the chapter, we'll be hitting the highlights of what essentially is a step-by-step process of how to make the uniform that Aaron and eventually his sons will wear to perform their high priestly duties. The idea of a uniform, I think, is very evocative in this context. Right? Uniforms communicate a lot. They can tell us what to expect when we look at a person. But when we look at the tools that God gives us to worship him, uh, such as the high priestly wardrobe, those tools should point us away from the person and point us to its purpose. You tracking with that? The first piece is called the ephod. It's a sort of uh, tabard. It's a bib, really, is what it is. The very first instruction about it that we see is that the materials uh, that it needs to be made out of are finely spun linen with some gold embroidery and blue and purple and scarlet yarn. Well, here's the cool thing about this. The ephod is actually made from the exact same materials that the tabernacle is made out of, which is the tent of meeting. God has already communicated here part of his purpose, that the high priest will be an instrument that God will use to meet with his people. To make this a little clearer, if we look at verse 9, it'll be on the screens as well. It says this. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Six of their names on the one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in the order of their birth. As a jeweler engraves signets, so shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree, and you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear the names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. It's like the high priest will carry God's people symbolically into the meeting place on his shoulders, right? He's going to do for the people what they can't do for themselves. And that's because the high priest has been set apart for this purpose specifically, and we'll get into that later. The next piece of clothing 
It has a similar purpose. So starting in verse 15, excuse me, we get instructions for the breast piece, or your Bible say breast, may, may say breastplate. Uh, God's word says this, that you shall make a breast piece of judgment in skilled work. In the style of the ephod you shall make it, of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and of fine twined linen you shall make it. From then it goes on to make uh, some measurements and give some dimensions, and then it describes 12 different stones that are going to be fixed on it. So very similar to the ephod, these 12 stones uh, hold some meaning for us. Verse 21 says, there shall be 12 stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, each engraved with a name for the 12 tribes. Twice now, God has used these garments to remind the people that they are his people and he remembers them by name. Twice now, God has prescribed the garments be made out of the same materials and the same colors as the tabernacle. So if there was any doubt, God has made a way to meet with his people in a way that's for their benefit and keeps them safe, and it blesses them. However, the purpose of the breast piece, while it is similar, it actually communicates something very distinct uh, from the ephod. So verse 29 says this. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breast piece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And in the breast piece of judgment, you shall put the Urim and Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. So not only will the high priest symbolically carry the tribes of Israel to meet with God on the strength of his shoulders, he holds them in his heart as well. His uniform communicates that he's not doing this for himself, that his aim is to represent his people and do what the Lord wants and what the Lord wills. The breast piece authorizes him to sit in judgment of Israel, so he'll listen to people's grievances and their problems. Uh, he'll make judgments, but he won't do them for himself or his own personal gain. I don't know if you caught those two words that were maybe a little unfamiliar to you. They were certainly unfamiliar to me when I started reading. Uh, the um, Urim and Thummim. Try saying that eight times fast because I've been doing that all week. Uh, most scholars actually aren't 100% sure what they are specifically, but they know the purpose. The purpose seemed to be a way to, uh, to make choices uh, like flipping a coin or rolling the dice, except with the express uh, understanding that it would be God's will that was done through them. They knew that God was in complete control when they were making these calls. Moving on to verse 31, the next piece of clothing that God calls uh, people to make for Aaron is a robe. 31 says this, you shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue. It shall have an opening for the head in the middle of it with a woven binding around the opening, like the opening in a garment so that it may not tear. On its hem, you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns around its hem with bells of gold between them. A golden bell and a pomegranate. A golden bell and a pomegranate. I love that they feel the need to dis distinguish that. Yes, alternating. We get it. Around the hem of the robe. Uh, so, and it shall be on Aaron when he ministers. And its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord. And when he comes out, so that he does not die. Okay. Uh, the robe is actually for the benefit of the people and of Aaron both. So it announces his presence, of course, 
but more importantly, it announces his purpose again. When the people hear these bells, they know what Aaron's doing, that he's going into the tent of meeting on their behalf, or he's returning from there from doing just that. In the Old Covenant, God dwells inside the tabernacle. That's where he's chosen to dwell among his people. I don't think he actually needs bells to tell him who's coming. I think he knows that. I think he understands that. But it does continually remind the people that to meet with Yahweh is actually incredibly dangerous if it's not done correctly. Our sinfulness, it can't coexist alongside God's holiness. And yet, God has still made a way for us, for God's people to meet with him. Let's keep moving. We're almost done with the clothing, and then I'm going to tell you why it matters to us here today. Verse 36 begins to describe a, a turban, which you heard read a little bit ago by Sarah. Uh, it is a turban, and there's a plate of gold with the words, Holy to the Lord, written on it. Verse 38 says this, It shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. The high priest bears the guilt of the people as he enters into the meeting place. And yet, because of the work that God has done for his people, he can still be made holy to go join with God in the tabernacle. The turban is another reminder of both God's holiness and his mercy. If we read forward, you would see the next few verses. Uh, it, it details a, uh, a, a coat. It tells us the materials for the turban. Uh, there's a, an embroidered sash. It doesn't really give any spiritual uh, significance to. But what I do love is the language that God has been using in the past few chapters, or the past few verses. Uh, like in verse 3, where God says that the people that should be making these things are, are skilled because they have been filled with a spirit of skill that God himself gave them. And I just love that because I think it just speaks to his, his care and attention, right? Like the God that we're worshiping here is the same God that uh, the gospel of Luke in chapter 12 says that God has numbered the hairs on our head. See, God is just a master craftsman and he's displaying some of his nature and his character in his work. If we skip ahead a few verses to chapter or for, to verse 42, uh, God actually outlines the underwear that the priests are going to wear. Okay, I really, really, really wanted to make a, a good joke about this. <laughs> I just don't have time, so I'll have to be brief. Okay, good, I knew you'd get it. So this is a big deal because the way that the tent and the altar are actually uh, designed, there's a very real chance that Aaron could go before the people to do his high priestly duties. He could make a wrong step and just expose himself. And the Bible says that he will incur that guilt and he will die, which seems extreme. But we have to remember that when Adam sinned against God, nakedness itself lost its innocence. In Genesis 3, their, uh, their shame had them hiding from God, desperately trying to cover their nudity. God, as a result of their sin, he curses humanity. But in the very next moment, God creates clothing out of skins, out of animal skins, to cover them. So in his mercy, I want you to catch this. In his mercy, Yahweh sheds sacrificial blood to cover his people. 
and the undergarments in just reminding us of this. God points us away from ourselves and he points us again to his grace and to his mercy. Everything we heard today are blueprints. They are blueprints for the tools that we needed to meet with the Lord as his people. These articles of clothing all have the same uh, overarching purpose. To lead God's people into a fullness of life by pointing us to God. That's what each piece of clothing is doing here today. So just like the high priestly wardrobe then, our tools of worship, our instruments of worship and gathering and meeting with God, they should do the same thing. So when we gather together like this uh, to worship, every aspect of our gathering should function in some way to point ourselves and to point others away from ourselves, away from this world, and point to God. Our music It should first and foremost address the Lord in worship. That is the correct posture to have when we're addressing him. Our life groups should function as a way to grow in gospel-centered community. The way that we we serve, it should be explicitly gospel-centered. It should be free from our own ambitions and our own selfish desires. When we take communion... Uh, if you've been here long enough, if we've taken communion, we, have, uh, we always take the time first to examine ourselves. And that's because our hearts are constantly orienting themselves around what we want, about our own desires. And we have to constantly reorient ourselves away from ourselves and pointing our, point our rudders to Christ. That's why we examine ourselves first, so that we can get rid of ourselves, if that makes any sense. See, those are our tools of worship. And God cares about them. And just as an aside, I, I hope that you'll take some time to, to just self-evaluate a bit and see what we do. Uh, to just take the time to, to know whether or not the things that we do in Jesus' name really point to Jesus. I know I'm going to do that. That's just a, a personal goal of mine. We have to make sure that the things we do in his name are pointed to Jesus before ourselves, before our reputation, before our politics or our social reform should be Jesus first, always. We actually get to move to the next chapter now, uh, chapter 29. When we look at it, I think the thing that we're going to have to just say right out of the gate and to just know and realize is that Aaron as a high priest, it can't be the perfect solution for many reasons. Like Aaron, he's still a man, right? He's still sinful, he's still finite, So, to make that happen, to make it work, there's an order of operations that has to go into effect before Aaron can actually meet with Yahweh on Israel's behalf. Chapter 29 says that he must be consecrated. So let's pick up in verse 1 of chapter 29. Again, you're going to see all this behind me. Verse 1 of chapter 29 of Exodus says this. Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You shall make them of fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket, and bring the bull and the two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments... And put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the, bre- and the breastpiece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. 
you shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them, and you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them. And the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. Consecration simply just means to be made holy or to be set apart. This idea of being set apart also communicates that they're being taken out of something. So like you and I, Aaron and his sons are completely unworthy of meeting God based on their own ability, okay? They need to be made clean first. So Aaron and his sons will be washed clean, and I mean that literally, they will bathe them. They're going to clothe them in the priestly garments and they're going to set them apart because if they didn't, God's holiness would literally destroy them. Ironically, that actually does end up happening uh, later in the book of Leviticus. Uh, Two of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, they're actually killed in the tabernacle. And it's likely because they were being drunk in God's presence. So it does happen. God's not saying this for nobody's benefit. Because God will not temper his holiness and lessen himself in that way. The great thing is, is that God still gives us a way to enter into his presence. And it's through the consecration of the high priest. So to be consecrated and ordained, uh, to just give you a few of the details, the high priest will take a bowl to the tabernacle and he's going to lay his hands on his head. And that is a symbolic transfer of guilt and sin. And then he will kill the bowl at the entrance and he's going to smear the blood of, of the bull on the horns of the altar. So after that, in verse 13, if you're trying to follow along, I'm sorry for jumping around so much. Uh, in verse 13, he's going to take the fat from the entrails, takes Parts of the liver and the kidneys, he's going to burn those on the altar. And just to make sure that there's no uncleanliness that takes a part in the uh, consecration process, the skin and the dung are burned outside the camp, away from the tabernacle. Because God is taking this very seriously. I'm not going to go through every step. Uh, I'll give you just kind of a breakdown of the rest of the stuff going forward. You're welcome to go back and read and check me on this. I know you love doing that, but I, I think I'm hitting the highlights. So, they will take one of the two rams that we read about. Uh, they're going to lay their hands on its head, just like, uh, just like the bull. They're going to kill the ram, and this time they're going to splash the blood on the sides of the altar. They're going to wash its entrails, and they're going to wash its legs, and they're going to place it all, after they cut it into pieces, they're going to put it on the altar, and they're going to burn it as a food offering to the Lord. It'll be a pleasing aroma, the Bible says. The second ram is sacrificed in a similar way, except the blood is then used to mark Aaron and his sons instead of the altar. It marks Aaron and his sons. After the blood, Aaron and his sons will be anointed with oil. And the Bible says that at that point, they will be made holy along with their garments. After that, there is a food offering of the bread and the cakes. And they need to be waved to the Lord as a wave offering, which is a new phrase for me. Uh, and then they're going to take that ram, and here's the thing. They're going to do something that I think has so much significance for you and I. They're going to portion out the right breast. They're going to portion out the right thigh. And then Aaron and his sons will eat them. And God says that's what they are due. That is their due. That's for them. So certainly, if you are a minister if you are uh, being paid by the church, it is worth mentioning that uh, the food that feeds our families 
uh, was paid for with money that belonged to God. Like, that's a good reminder for us. It helps us point to God's providence and all things. That's a good thing to remember. But what is so important is the fact that Aaron and his sons will eat of the sacrifice. Just hold that in your brains for a moment. The most important thing for you and I to take from this chapter overall is that we still have a need for a high priest. We have not earned God's mercy. And if we earned it, that wouldn't be mercy anyway. For you and I, we need to remember that Jesus' sacrifice was on our behalf and we were in desperate need of it. We are covered with his righteousness and made holy by his effort. That is a once and for all time sacrifice, okay? That's a one-time deal. It happened and it's done. But to truly have a fullness of life, the kind of life that God wants for us, we must continually eat of the sacrifice. The sacrifice will nurture and sustain us And when we do that, it will remove our reliance on what the world has to offer us. Culture does not want you and I to be set apart. See, consecration implies that the person or the object that's consecrated uh, is given into holy service uh, completely. In other words, completely selfless. And you cannot profit off of selflessness like that. But instead, where we live now, we're constantly being bombarded with reminders that we have wants and we have needs and we think things are owed to us. Where you turn on your TV, right, and you're just your favorite news network tells you that this or that group, they're, uh, they're against everything that you know to be good and right and true. And if you would just align yourself with this uh, specific person or this group or this ideology, just align yourself, give your allegiance to them, that bad stuff will go away. And the good stuff that you like, you know, because it's good for you. The good stuff that you like, it will, be, it will reign supreme if you would just give them your allegiance. This is our dystopian nightmare. Listen to me, church. In order for this machine to turn, we have to be inwardly focused for so long that we can just be chewed up and spit out, just ground up into soylent paste. That's all the machine Jesus has. That's not the life that, you, that, that God wants for you and I. That's not it. But it is the life that we, uh, that we created for ourselves when we thought we knew better. This is why Jesus is such great news for us. Jesus is a massive threat to this worldview. In fact, if we look at the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 says this. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is the only one qualified to make the sacrifice that we need. This sacrifice brings us a new identity. Now we are ambassadors for Christ. We don't serve ourselves any longer when we are washed with the blood, when we partake of that sacrifice. We are sanctified. We are made holy by God's word made flesh. And that frees us from that dissonance that this world tries to leave us in. We don't have to buy into the lies that something worldly will fulfill us anymore. 
because Jesus will sustain us. His sacrifice bought us a, a fullness of life in the Father that this world could never give us. Let's, uh, let's look back to Aaron as we wrap things up today because uh, we're going to see what we can expect through life in Christ, uh, through life in communion with the Father. So in verse 29, uh, you'll see that God actually points us past the life of Aaron uh, to his sons because God's people will always need a high priest. Like it's, our need for a high priest is going to outlast Aaron's lifetime. We're always going to need someone to bridge the gap between ourselves and the Father. So let's look today at what we can expect the high priest to do for us that we can never do for ourselves. We're going to start in verse 38. 38 says this, Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb, a tenth measure of fine flour mingled with a fourth of a hin of beaten oil, and a fourth of a hin of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight, and shall offer it with a grain offering at its drink offering, as in the morning. For a pleasing aroma, a food offering for the Lord. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak with you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. It will, I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of, e of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. The quality of life that we are afforded through Jesus is our ability to interact with the Father without fear of his wrath or his justice. Okay, through Jesus, God now shares a meal with us. So verse 41, I have some emphasis added behind me if you want to just take a look at that for a sec. Verse 41 says that we offer food and drink to the Lord. So I don't know about you guys, uh, but in my house, my wife specifically, because I don't know how to cook, uh, my wife shows her care and her love for people by preparing meals for them, preparing meals for the people that, uh, that we love, the people that need care. It is an intimate and personal thing. And honestly, it's one of the best parts about meeting with other believers. I, sometimes it's a little too good, I know. Sometimes i got to wear suspenders, you guys know. But it truly is amazing that we can be that near to our God. Right? Verse 42 says that he will meet with us, that he will speak to us there. In our sin, yet clothed in Christ's righteousness, we meet with him. We come together with him. He's not going to hide from us. He's not going to banish us, banish us from him. He actually meets us and speaks with us. I don't think I can hit that point enough. But finally, in verse 46, it's going to wrap everything up really neatly. And he's going to remind us of his purpose. That he delivered his people from slavery in order to dwell among them and be the Lord their God. That was his purpose then, and that's his purpose for you and I now. Everything we talked about today, they're reminders of a life that you and I can't attain by our own efforts. And that's why we need a high priest 
That's why the high priest needs to be set apart. He needs to be clothed in holiness. It all points us away from ourselves. It points us away from the world. And it points us to the Lord. It points us to Jesus. That's the fullness of life that this world hates. It hates it because it doesn't understand it at all. It's completely incompatible because it's not self-centered. When we point ourselves away from from our own desires and we seek nearness to God... Because of Jesus, we are able to live the way that we were meant to live. Reconciled to God, perfectly content in his presence, and worshiping him eternally. And it's all thanks to the God-man that that gap was bridged. So I hope, what my hope is today, is that you will trust in that man, that God-man, that Jesus today. Trust him that he provides a way to enter into communion with the Father. He's able to point us away from ourselves, and he's able to sustain us with his sacrifice continually, fully, forever. It is sufficient. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, that we would trust in you that way. That we would trust that you will always provide for us. That your sacrifice sustains us when we have nothing else. God, that you are worthy of our worship And that the things we do in your name, God, we will fail. We will not do things perfectly. But God, that you would continually remind us to to reorient our rudders towards Christ Jesus in all that we are, all that we do. God, as we go before you in worship one last time today through song, uh, as a gathered body, I pray that you just receive glory and honor. That we lift up your name and your name alone here in this place today. God, thank you for the the time that we've had to open your word. uh, To learn a little about a very dense portion of text. But God, that it would just remind us of our need for Jesus. And it's in that Jesus' name we pray. Amen.